We begin chapter 18, Sotapanna, the spiritual turning point number three. So this is the third of four chapters about stream entry. And uh, the uh, title of this particular section is called, What are the Results? With the arising of the Dhamma eye and the seeing of the deathless, the mind drops its attachment to the first three of the ten fetters, Sangyojana. Identity view, Sakaya Diti, doubt, Vichikicha, and the distorted grasp of rules and vows, Silapata Paramasa. A clear description of identity or personality view comes in the dialogue between the Arahant Bhikkhuni Dhammadinna and the layman Visaka, her former husband. And this is in Sutra number uh, 44 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the, um, uh, one of the, it's called the Discourse on Questions and Answers. And uh, Visaka asks um, Sister Dhammadina, Lady, how does identity view come to be? Here, friend Visaka, an untaught ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their Dhamma, who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their Dhamma, regards material form as self, so rupa, as self, or self as possessed of material form, or material form as in-self, or, material, or as self in material form. He regards feeling as self, or self as possessed of feeling, or feeling as in-self, or self as in-feeling. He regards perception as self, or self as possessed of perception, or perception as in-self, or self as in-perception. He regards formations as self, or self as possessed of formations, or formations as in-self, or as self as in-formations. He regards consciousness as self, or self as possessed of consciousness, or uh, consciousness as in-self, or self as in-consciousness. That is how identity view comes to be. So that um, is a, a fairly thorough analysis that you have there, um, using the, the form of the five khandhas. And then uh, it's similar to the uh, uh, dialogue with Anuradha, when uh, the, the, um, uh, this uh, monk, was, Anuradha, was asked about whether an enlightened being exists after death or not. And then um, he uh, was uh, criticized by the other wanderers that he'd spoken to um, when uh, they'd asked him whether a Tathagata exists or, uh, after death or not, or both, both uh, exists or, uh, and not exists, or neither exists nor not exists. And then the, uh, Anuradha replied, friends, a Tathagata in describing them describes them apart from these four instances. And then when, the, when he went to check his answer with the Buddha to see whether he'd uh, uh, replied appropriately or not, then uh, the, the um, series of questions that the, the, the Buddha put to him uh, was very similar to this dialogue between uh, Sister Dhammadina and uh, Visaka. He said, do you, how do you conceive this, Anuradha? Do you see material form as the Tathagata, no venerable sir? Do you, uh, do you see the Tathagata as immaterial form, no venerable sir? Do you see the Tathagata as apart from material form? No, Venerable Sir. Uh, how do you conceive this, Anuradha? Do you see the Tathagata as being all five khandhas together? Uh, how do you conceive this, Anuradha? Do you see the Tathagata as that which has no material form, no feeling, no perception, no mental formations, no consciousness? So, uh, And that's not the only two places. It's a pattern that occurs few different parts of the, the, the canon, but it's a, sort of a, a thorough exploring of like this, uh, the, the, the self possesses the body, or the body possesses the self, or it's inside or it's outside, and uh, any way of positioning a, a, a self, uh, a, a, an atta, uh, a self-identity in relationship to any of the five khandhas is, is pointed out as that's the very cause of, of uh, identity view, sakaya ditti, self-view. And it's most easily summarized just in the idea, I am the body, I am the personality, I am my thoughts, I am my feelings, that's what I am. I am the owner of my thoughts, I'm the, the experiencer, 
I'm the doer of my actions. That's these are me and mine, and this is what I am. So that's uh, bundled up uh, within that uh, analysis that she gives. That although this description is clear, it's a bit terse and may not display its implications immediately. Therefore, in the following passage, the contemporary voice of Ajahn Chah may help the reader to understand the significance of the grasping itself in its many forms. And this is a, a passage from Being Dharma, um, which is some of uh, Lumpur Chah's teachings translated by uh, Paul Breiter, who was a, uh, a bhikkhu with him back in the, uh, the early 70s. The Buddha intended for us to be free of attachment to the five aggregates, to lay them down and give up involvement with them. We cannot give them up, however, because we don't really know them for what they are. We believe happiness to be ourselves. We see ourselves as happy. We believe suffering to be ourselves and see ourselves as unhappy. We can't pull the mind out of this view, which means we're not seeing nature. There isn't any self involved, but we're always thinking in terms of self. Thus it seems that happiness happens to us. Suffering happens to us. Elation happens to us. Depression happens to us. The chain of self is constructed, and with this solid feeling that there is a self, everything seems to be happening to us. So the Buddha said to destroy this conception, this block called self. When the concept of self is destroyed and finished, we're free of the belief that there's a self in the body, and then the condition of selflessness is naturally revealed. Believing that there is me and mine, and living with selfishness, everything is understood as being a self, or belonging to a self, or somehow relating to a self. When the phenomena of nature are seen thus, there's no real understanding. If nature appears to be good, we laugh and rejoice over it. If phenomena appear to be bad, we cry and lament. Thinking of natural phenomena as constituting ourselves, or something we own, we create a great burden of suffering to carry. If we realize the truth of things, we would not have all the drama of excitement, elation, grief and tears. It is said, pacification is true happiness, and this comes when attachment is rooted out through seeing reality. So uh, reading this, it also reminds me of a, of a teaching that I, I often quote when uh, people come and, and talk, ask questions, or they um, see how many meetings I go to or how much time I spend uh, talking to people and so on. And uh, so I often quote this, this uh, dialogue that uh, took place between Ajahn Chah and some visitors many years ago. And uh, they'd been to, to see uh, Wat Bapong, uh, Ajahn Chah's main monastery, and it's, it saw the... Um, the large gathering of uh, of monks and nuns, lay people gathering around for the at the the meal time, and then walking around through the forest and seeing the kutis and different construction going on. And so, after this little tour around the monastery, they they came to um, to see Ajahn Chah, and his his hut, his kuti, was quite near to the the main temple, uh, the the oppositor hall. And in front of the oppositor hall, there are these old uh, sema stones, like uh, boundary stones from, from old monasteries. And uh, so this visitor was saying to, to Lumpur, oh, Lumpur, it's, I don't know, uh, you know how you manage with all these people. Everyone's coming to see you all day long, and you've got so many responsibilities. You've got 20, 30, 40 different branch monasteries, and there's dozens of, of monks and nuns living here, and, and everyone's sort of calling on your time. Yeah, it must be so difficult for you. It must be so stressful. You must be so busy. You know, all this, uh, all this uh, must be a huge burden. Para, uh, bara in the Pali or para in Thai. And then he pointed over to this, um, the big sema stone, uh, you know, in front of the the temple, and said, "You see that that stone?" He said, and they said, "Yeah." I said, "Is that is that heavy?" And they said, "Yeah, it's a huge stone. I mean, it must weigh." Yeah, hundreds of kilos. He said, it's really heavy. He said, not if you don't pick it up. <laughs> if you pick it up, it's heavy. If you don't pick it up, it's not heavy. So I, I, I've quoted that dozens, of, maybe hundreds of times. So uh, if you pick it up, it's heavy. If you don't pick it up, it's not heavy. There, and that, uh, 
very simple to say, very easy to uh, articulate, but uh, not easy to remember when there's um, uh, kind of all those uh, all things sort of happening, landing on you and um, re- requiring your um, uh, your input or your decision. Sometimes when I, I sit here in this little uh, little seat uh, in the middle of the sala, I think I should have a little notice saying "pounce here." Like, <laughs> but, uh, this is the uh, like uh, one of the American presidents famously had a sign on his desk saying "the the buck stops here," so that uh, I have a little you know, please pounce here. Ajahn, can you give us the answer to this important question? But uh, it's uh, if you don't give it a landing place, if you don't, or you don't lift it up, you don't uh, hoist it, then it's not heavy. So this uh, um, this is talking about the non-identification, non-clinging uh, with, uh, with with respect to the, the body and mind, personality, thoughts, feelings, etc. Ajahn Chah's emphasis in teaching about the higher attainments would almost invariably lean towards speaking about that which is relinquished, let go of. This method tended to help his students deal with the obstacle that they were facing rather than looking to an idealized goal in the future. As the true nature of things is seen clearly and we're able to discard that which fetters or obstructs us, we are more able to be established in a true refuge. Now this is an important point because it was actually quite rare that Ajahn Chah would, would talk about Nibbana or talk about liberation or, or enlightenment. And mostly he talked about letting go of defilements or, or um, building paramita, the spiritual virtues. And so that it was rather than a kind of glorious goal off in the distance you know, that uh, is um, inspiring and dazzling, he would continually bring the attention to the, the work that actually needed to be done, rather than making a big um, uh, fuss or a big kind of um, uh, kind of uh, elaborate and uh, attractive, inspiring descriptions about the, the nature of the goal. So, it, and it, it's that was his uh, his style. So he very almost never talked about uh, <coughs> levels of realization. Never he talked about stream entry or, or enlightenment. Very very rarely. Um, very very rarely talked about levels of um, meditation, like. Um, Different levels of jhana. I mean, once in a while, very, very briefly in, in talks. But he was very conscious of people getting uh, too sort of goal fixated or competitive. You know, who's who's reached which level, and you know what, and uh, you know what uh, what kind of accomplishment does this person have or that person have? And he saw that was that was uh, drawing the attention outwards. And so, uh, and oftentimes people would come and ask him, you know, Lumpur, Lumpur, are you enlightened? And he said, well. You shouldn't be concerned about whether I'm in line. You should ask yourself why you're not. <laughs> <laughs> so that would, and he had this incredible ability to always sort of hand it back to you, like, oh yeah, right. Yeah. Or that, or he'd sometimes say something like, "It takes one to know one." Yeah. So. The clear seeing of stream entry is the force behind the cutting off of this fetter. Identity views take the five khandas as their focus. When these five khandas are seen arising and ceasing in the context of causal conditions and dependently arisen, a fixed view of self is cut off and dropped. Particularly, the allowing of the khandas to cease in the awareness of dependent origination in its cessation mode opens the way for the experience of the deathless. The tendency to view the khandas as self is then eradicated. So that is a fairly densely packed sentence. I'll read it again. When the five khandas are seen arising and ceasing in the context of causal conditions and dependently arisen, so when, you, when it's seen the body and feelings, perceptions, it's seen as they're arising and ceasing and that they are just patterns of nature depending, arising and ceasing depending on causes and, and, uh, and conditions, then a fixed view of self is cut off and dropped. So it's like, oh, this is just hearing, just feeling, this is just remembering, this is just thinking, this is just an emotion, this is just approving, disapproving, liking, feeling, uh, feeling uh, pleased and inspired, feeling uh, depressed and, and, uh, and uh, rejected. It's just a feeling. And it's arisen because this person spoke to me in a way that was 
I took as hurtful. This person spoke to me in a way that was really inspiring. So therefore now I feel inspired, or I feel regretful, or I feel annoyed, or I feel uh, elated. And that uh, seeing that the, uh, the, the flow of perceptions, and the, the arising and passing away of the khandhas is dependently arisen, a fixed view of self is cut off and dropped. Particularly, the allowing of the khandhas to cease in the awareness of dependent origination in its cessation mode opens the way for the experience of the deathless. The tendency to view the khandhas as self is then eradicated. So this is the um, Paticca Niroda. He's referring to the, the second half of the dependent origination cycle. So when there's no ignorance, when uh, ignorance does not arise, then the whole um, uh, 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 chain of causation doesn't come into being. And just to remind you of that, um, when we talk about cessation and Niroda, back in chapter 8, uh, there was a very helpful little description by uh, Venerable Paiuto from his book Dependent Origination about the word Niroda. The word Niroda has been translated as cessation, quote-unquote, for so long that it has become standard practice and any deviation from it leads to queries. Even in this book, I have opted for this standard translation for the sake of convenience and to avoid confusing it for other Pali terms apart from the lack of a better word. In fact, however, this rendering of the word niroda as ceased can in many instances be a misrendering of the text. Generally speaking, the word cease means to do away with something which has already arisen, or the stopping of something which has already begun. However, niroda in the teaching of dependent origination, also, uh, as also in dukkha niroda, the third of the noble truths, means the non-arising or non-existence of something because the cause of its arising is done away with. For example, the phrase when avicca is niroda, sankara are also niroda, which is usually taken to mean with the cessation of ignorance, volitional impulses cease. In fact means when there is no ignorance or no arising of ignorance or when there is no longer any problem with ignorance, there are no volitional impulses. Volitional impulses do not arise, or there is no longer any problem from volitional impulses. It doesn't mean that ignorance already arisen must be done away with before the volitional impulses which have already arisen will also be done away with. So that's a helpful um, the expansion of the, the meaning of that word cessation, and, and in particularly in the light of what uh, Ajahn Pasano is saying here, that when, <clears throat> when the mind is awake and there's awareness, then the, the mind is not giving credibility to uh, the, um, the whole array of the, of the uh, nama rupa, the mind and body, the six senses, and the, the realm of, of feeling and perception as it arises. It's not being solidified and, and, and held in terms of, of self-view. Well, the, uh, that term of uh, like, there's no problem with it. It's if uh, if the mind is aware of that, if it's if it sees, oh, this is a uh, uh, there's a volition, there's an, an interest in something, or there's a a, 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 um, like a motivation to to get up and walk, or to uh, to put the mind onto a particular subject, to sort of, oh, what's that? The, the, that the mind knows. Oh, there's a volition, there's an interest, there's a movement of attention to that particular whoosh, that, that object. If, the, if there's vijja, if there's awareness, then it's, oh, that's just an, that's an impulse that's happening. And if there, so if there's, if there's no ignorance, if there's vijja rather than avijja, then it's like the whole uh, collection of, uh, like, say, the uh, volition, volitional formations, nama rupa, the body and mind, the six senses, it's all seen within the context of, oh, this is just the, the shape of the world. This is just the you know, feelings, thoughts, memories, tastes, 
you know, smells arising and passing. Yeah, it's, it's dependent origination only to do with suffering then, ultimately. It's not about reality as a whole, it's just the process of suffering that's caused by ignorance. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, it's a teaching about how dukkha arises and how it how it can cease. So That's the awareness isn't part of the dependent origination. Well, um, the um, if there's vijja rather than avijja, if there's awareness, then that whole um, set of conditions doesn't get uh, solidified or, or made potent, or, or it's not given strength. So. Yeah, when the, when the mind is awake, it, there's still a body and mind. There's still a personality. There's still feeling and seeing and hearing, smelling, t- tasting, and touching. The, the those factors of experience and the life force are all still there. Yeah, the, the Buddha didn't dissolve in uh, on the enlightenment. Yeah, that's the, uh, but rather they are um, their solidity ceases. Their their kind of um, uh, the the reality or the solidity the 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 meaningfulness that the mind gives to thought and and, and feeling and uh, pain and pleasure and so forth that uh, that's seen in its true light rather than being believed in. So like, like just as Ajahn Chah says, you know, we believe happiness to be ourselves. We believe uh, I'm happy, I'm unhappy. That's uh, uh, that's really good. That's really bad. That the mind is believing in those those moods and, and identifying with them, and so when there's vijja, then the mind can't identify with it. It's just it knows well. This is a happy feeling, or this is an unhappy feeling. This is feeling cold, feeling warm. Uh, how could it be more than that? So that you in in other interpretations or, or readings of dependent origination, like say Joanna Macy's book. World as love or world as self. She takes the dependent origination teachings and makes it into a kind of a whole different philosophy. It talks about the, sort of the interconnectedness of all beings, and essentially, dependent origination is not about, in terms of the Pali Canon, it's not about that. But she's taken the, and she's not the only person. I mean, there's, others have done similar things, and turned it into a whole kind of a map of reality or a creation story. And it really isn't intended in that way. It's it's really, um, it's a, it's it's a, a creation story about how dukkha is created, <laughs> and and how it can how it can cease. And, and if there's just that pure awareness, is that not separate? But that's not part of it. I mean, that's not part of that cycle anyway. Is it, is it still that instead of the VG, you've just got VG? Still part. Correct. Of it's that that which is knowing the cycle. You know, in the the, uh, the classical images of the the bhava chakra, the wheel of birth and death, you have Yama as this sort of demonic figure, like a big yaka with the you know, with curly fingernails and holding up this round, holding the wheel. That's uh, in, in the iconography. That's uh, uh, it's called a wheel. It's called the bhava chakra, the the wheel of becoming. But it's also a mirror. That's the point of it. So that the you are looking at. at uh, at, uh, you're looking in the mirror, <laughs> and that the uh, the the mind, when it believes in the 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 what, what appears in the mirror as being me and mine, then there's the 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 mind is is attached and identified with the wheel of becoming. When the mind knows, oh, that's just the that's just the the changes of the world. That's just the the um, <coughs> different realms of feeling and perception arising and passing away. That's all. If it knows, that's just the the, um, the perceptions of the world arising, the world ceasing. Then it's not born into the world. So there's, a, and that's why liberation is possible, is because that quality of awareness is intrinsically separate from. And that's one of the teachings that comes up over and over, like the image of the oil and water. Because they're essentially immiscible, they can't be mixed. Then they all, they separate out from each other, so that that. Uh, because of the mind habitually and repeatedly attaching to thoughts, feelings, perceptions, the body, the mind, 
then it keeps keeps being reborn. But the the essential nature of, of that quality of awareness is that it's it's not identified with with the objects. And when it when it lets go, then that quality of of uh, of liberation is experienced. Is that not a duality? You can call it that, if you're allergic to the word duality. But isn't the teaching also meant to be non-dual? So it's, they're not actually separate. It's just the use of words. Yeah. It's like if you don't like, if you don't like duality, then you, uh, and you think uh, you know, <coughs> that uh, oh no, that the uh, it, it all has to be one, then liberation is impossible. It's because that uh, that awareness transcends the patterns of perception that liberation is possible. So, to continue. So this next passage, um, let's see. The Sotapanna has clearly seen the nature of body and mind. Although experiencing illness would normally create suffering, the mind of a Sotapanna is not overwhelmed. Nakula Pitta the protagonist in this next sutta was a stream enterer and was de- uh, declared by the Buddha foremost among his male lay disciples who were trustworthy. Also, uh, Nakula Pita and Nakula Mata, they appear numerous times in the suttas. They had been the parents of the Buddha in 500 previous lifetimes, so numerous, uh, numerous lifetimes, more than Mahamaya and uh, King Suddhodana. So Nakula Pita and Nakula Mata, like, um, more repeatedly, the, the, the parents of the Bodhisattva in previous lifetimes. And in this particular lifetime, they were very, very old. And so they were also um, very devoted to each other. So there's various teachings uh, with the, both of them together. And uh, anyway, um, in this particular occasion, Nakula Pita is sort of very old, very sickly, and has come to ask for uh, advice. Uh, and the question has been is it possible to be. Afflicted in body, but not afflicted in mind, because uh, you know affliction in the body is uh, you know, inescapable at that point. Like he's uh, 100 years old or 120 years old, I forget exactly. So this is from the Kandavaga, the um, connected discourses about the the five Kandas, section 22 of the uh, Sangita Nikaya, and uh, it's the Venerable Sariputta talking to Nakula Pitta here. And how householder is one afflicted in body but not afflicted in mind? Here householder, the instructed noble disciple, who is a seer of the noble ones and is skilled and disciplined in their dhamma, who is a seer of superior persons and is skilled and disciplined in their dhamma, does not regard form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in-self, or self as in-form. He does not live obsessed by the notions, I am form, form is mine. As he lives unobsessed by these notions, that form of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, there do not arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. Yeah, and so too with uh, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. It is in such a way, householder, that one is uh, afflicted in body but not afflicted in mind. This is what the Venerable Sariputta said, elated the householder Nakula Pitta, delighted in the Venerable Sariputta's statement. So that uh, also, uh, this is a sutra I've quoted numerous times, very helpful advice for people who are um, getting uh, older and decrepit, or even when they're young and decrepit, and uh, dealing with illnesses, chronic pain and such like, that uh, you, know, you do the best you can with the illnesses of the body, and it's, uh, and it's um, the fact that it's heading in one direction only. <laughs> um, but also that the Buddha uh, and the, the teachings point out that there's a, uh, there is... Uh, inevitably going to be some difficulty with the body. One can be, a, but one can be afflicted in body, but not afflicted in mind. And this teaching is about uh, non-identification again, breaking through self-view in that respect. So that's the first sutta in the Kandavaga. Doubt, the second theta, is the basis from which we formulate most of our views and opinions of ourselves and the world around us. Perplexity and uncertainty hold beings attached to the world quite firmly. When we see truth only partially, the human tendency is to fill in the blanks 
and then to cling to what we have constructed. This tendency was especially strong in the Buddha's time, given India's rich tradition of exploring religious ideas and practices. But even there, any person who had developed the clear seeing that culminates in entering the stream was able to put aside the whole realm of philosophical speculation and superstitious belief that often dominates the religious landscape. The next sutta is an example of the many types of views from the Buddha's time that the Sotapanna would abandon. Although some, of the, although some of the beliefs recounted here might sound quaint to our ears, we in the 21st century West have our own array of misguided beliefs which are just as entangling. So um, in this particular respect, then Ajahn Pasana is talking about doubt as um, particularly focused around religious beliefs and views. Um, very often the, the vichikicha, that is uh, the second fetter, is defined as doubt about what is the path and what is not the path. So the, in this respect he's, he's focusing on, on doubt as like uh, belief systems or um, uh, practices that you think are going to be, uh, going to be liberating. So that, that's one aspect of it. But in going beyond doubt is, in a, um, is also knowing what's the, what's the essence of the practice and what's the, the, the most um, beneficial area of, of attention. So uh, this is from um, the Sangyutta Nikaya. Again, this is from section 24. At Savati. Bhikkhus, when what exists, by clinging to what, by adhering to what, does such a view as this arise? The winds do not blow, the rivers do not flow, pregnant women do not give birth, the moon and sun do not rise and set, but stand steady as a pillar. And the response is, Venerable Sir, our teachings are rooted in the Blessed One, guided by the Blessed One. We have the Blessed One as their resort. It would be good if the Blessed One would explain the meaning of these words. Having heard it from the Blessed One, the bhikkhus will remember it. So then the Buddha basically is saying, we haven't got a clue what you're talking about, so please, <laughs> please explain. Uh, we don't know what the answer to this is. So then the Buddha explains. When there is form, bhikkhus, rupa, by clinging to form, by adhering to form, such a view as this arises, the winds do not blow, uh, and the rivers do not flow, and so forth. When there is feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, by clinging to consciousness, by adhering to consciousness, such a view as this arises. Winds do not blow, the rivers do not flow, pregnant women do not give birth, the moon and sun do not rise and set, but stand steady as a pillar. What do you think, bhikkhus? Is form permanent or impermanent? The feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. Is consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. But without clinging to what is impermanent, suffering and subject to change, could such a view as this arise? No, venerable sir. That which is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, attained, sought after and ranged over by the mind, is that permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. But without clinging to what is impermanent, suffering and subject to change, could such a view as that arise? No, venerable sir. When bhikkhus a noble disciple has abandoned perplexity in these six cases, and when further he's abandoned perplexity about suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way leading to the cessation of suffering, he is then called a noble disciple who is a stream enterer, no longer bound to the nether world, fixed in destiny, with enlightenment as his destination. So Ajahn Pasna only quotes this one sutta in relationship to Vichikicha, doubt. Um, but it's, uh, it's very, even though it quotes these kind of particular kind of peculiar views, as he says, in the 21st century West we have our own array of misguided beliefs that we, we have. Like uh, you might believe that the number of Facebook followers that you have is proportional to your happiness. I'm not reading anybody's mind. Or, you, know, you might feel the number of, uh, number of retreats that you can do at Amravati in the year is a, is a guarantee of happiness. Yeah. Yeah. 
we have all sorts of very strange beliefs. We might say, you know, who on earth would believe that the, you know, the, the winds don't blow? Like, what, how could you believe that? Oh, that that's, uh, what a strange thing to think. But we have all kinds of strange things that we think. When, when uh, I first went to Wat Pananachar, you know, and I didn't speak any Thai really, but um, the villagers were very good in trying to sort of communicate with the young Anagarikas, novices, monks, and communicating and so they'd ask you you know are you homesick which is a very weird question i'm 21 years old why should i be homesick but to them it's like to spend a night away from their house in the village would be like a total trauma so that they they would the, that would be the first question they'd ask is are you homesick and so for most foreigners you know farangs it would be like i haven't felt homesick since i was eight you know, why would i be homesick what a weird question but anyway, one of the so uh, but one of the, the questions they would ask, you know, is like, what do your parents do, or what kind of uh, what kind of uh, background do you come from? So I used to try and explain that my father was a judge of dog shows, and, it, <laughs> the, and that's what he, that was his profession. He used to he well, he used to write for a dog magazine, Dog World, and he used to travel around the world judging dog shows. And in, in North, it's different now. They actually, they actually have like um, uh, pedigree dogs around Bungwai village nowadays. Even dogs with little coats on in the winter cold season. Even the dogs with jackets. But when, back in the 70s, the dog had the so, a, a social status slightly above a rat <laughs> in northeast Thailand. So that nobody actually really owned dogs. They were just sort of running around the village and... They, and you know, once in a while, a house they would have a particular dog that hung around a bit more than the others, and you'd kind of give it some food. But uh, so then I'd say, try to explain that my father's job was saying this dog is more beautiful than that, <laughs> and they would give me this look like this. Farang's tie is really bad. You know. <laughs> he can't mean that. <laughs> it's like saying this rat is more beautiful, or this cockroach is more beautiful than that cockroach. It's like <laughs> what? And, but you know they just have you know the um, Crafts Dog Show or Westminster Dog Show, you know, and there's serious emotional investment and huge amounts of money go into dog breeding and dog shows and um, and entire livelihoods like my father's is based around dog breeding. And um, but from another point of view, it's like what a strange belief. You know, why would the the appearance of a dog have any value or meaning? Like, so, um, uh, you know, the, I mean, that's just one random example, but uh, we have all kinds of, we have other strange beliefs that uh, your children's educational achievements, you know, why should that matter? Yeah. How many years you've been a nun or a monk? What's, what's that got to do with anything important? Like, but, 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 you know, we have our own value systems, but there is, it's all... Um, Something that the, the mind gives. Uh, uh, anyway, it also overlaps into Sila Pataparamasa, but uh, we create things that, that we give value to. Um, you know, how, much, you know, how much money you have in the bank. You don't actually have any money in the bank. You just have a, 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 a bit of computer code that says there's a certain amount of <laughs> digits applied to your name, size of a number applied to your name, but there isn't actually like kind of a pile of gold in a, in a room somewhere that says... This belongs to Rookie Shilam, mm -hmm. yeah, I imagine. <laughs> that that doesn't exist anymore. But you say, I've got so much money, or I'm in debt. It's just yeah, and numbers in a computer, uh, computer memory. So in this respect, the, um, the, this um, speaking about... Um, Belief and doubt, and of, as he says, filling up the yeah, the very nice phrase he used. Um, the human tendency is to fill in the blanks and then cling to what we have constructed. You know, we create these value systems that fill in the blanks, and then we cling to that. And then the Buddha takes this particular collection of views and then sort of brings it to, down to saying, well, the um, the belief in these kind of views and, and filling in the blanks in that way it comes from clinging to form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. But any of the five khandhas that the mind adheres to, clings to, um, 
uh, it's, uh, it's necessarily uh, impermanent, unsatisfactory, and subject to change. And so that he's bringing it down, that the, the essential insight into, uh, that leads to, to um, stream entry is then that insight into impermanence. So whether it's the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, whatever aspect of experience, the very fact it's in a state of change, it's transient, it's uncertain. That's the, the, the key that's the, the hinge point of it. And so the, this is, um, you know, again, it's a very, very common theme of Lumpur Cha's um, teaching. So when people would say, um, I've just had this, this, uh, this um, very profound experience in meditation, I had this, this, this strange vision, and it was um, it, all in this very interesting things were happening. And... and uh, <coughs> <coughs> this kind of image appeared, and then Lumpur would say, well, did it begin and end? And they said, well, yes, okay, that's all you need to know. <laughs> or, uh, you know, or, that, or I went to see this great Ajahn, he was so wise, so incredible, and this amazing uh, um, kind of a, a quality of, of um, wisdom and, and energy this person had, and, and Lumpur would just say, well, uh, did you arrive? Did you leave? Okay, that's all you need to know. You know? <laughs> did it begin and end? That's all you need to know. And uh, and so, some people would feel a bit deflated by that. <laughs> but also, it'd be the same if uh, you know you had a terrible experience. You had this kind of uh, awful um, state of depression and difficulty and struggle and this terrible conflict in your family. And uh, and Lumpur would say, "Well, did it begin? Uh, well, yes. It, you know, it's had a certain starting point. Well, is it going to last forever? Do you think it'll last for a hundred years? Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. Well." If it begins and it ends, that's all you need to know. That's 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 the main the main thing. It's it's not about what she said or he said or what you should have said or what they did. It's just, if it if it begins and it ends, that's all you need to know. So you would keep bringing it back to that quality of of transiency and the the, the key factors of uh, it, if it begins and ends. That's that's the main <coughs> the main set of qualities that you need to be interested in. Well, it's different. It, it depends on the experience, but it, it and how you frame it. But what he is saying is like encouraging that, letting the mind not get fascinated with the content, or whether it was wonderful, it's amazing teacher you went to go and visit, and it's wow, it's kind of incredible feeling, and it's like it's so inspiring. And I was just like the whole, I was the whole universe. <laughs> he said, well, did it begin and end? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just he's keep keep saying, <clears throat> don't don't get drawn into the content, but look at the 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 transient quality of it, and so that, and one of the very you know insightful things that he he uh, he said is um, uh, anicca is the Buddha, or uncertainty is the Buddha, anicca is the Buddha. So the uh, the Buddha said, one who sees me sees the Dhamma, yeah, one who sees the Dhamma sees me. What is the Dhamma? The Dhamma is the truth of uncertainty, the truth of impermanence. So, if one sees the truth of impermanence, one is seeing the Buddha. And uh, so, it's a, it's a very interesting little sort of logical sequence. And then so, and also that um, <coughs> is a, the Lumpur Chah had a good way of getting people's attention. So, saying like uncertainty is the Buddha. It's like what? How do you get that? But if you if you reflect on it, it's like the mind that sees, oh, it's it's changing, it begins and ends. That's the that's the Buddha mind. That's the the mind that's looking at. Oh, it's in a constant state of, of flow. It's an event stream. That that's what it is. It's not matter whether it's exalted and wonderful or terrible or awful or completely weird or utterly painful. It's just, it's changing. Oh, look at that. And then so that's the, the mind that is attending to it. But it's not entranced by the content. So you can frame it in different ways. But it says the whole point is that sort of the coming out of the dream. Like, oh, it was just a dream. Whoa.
It is. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's where Kalyanamita, spiritual friendship, helps a lot. Because uh, where, whereas uh, uh, as an individual we might get very easily drawn in then, uh, and so caught up in a state of excitement or fear or pain or irritation or confusion, then it's our spiritual friends that say, you're, you're looking bright. <laughs> what happened to you? Or like, are you okay? You know. And then, then we we have a chance to to kind of uh, balance out or help the the perceptions to to balance out or be seen in context because the uh, the let's say the the reflection and support that we get from from Kalyanamitta from spiritual friends helps that kind of oh yeah right well <laughs> yeah I was, uh, I just been having this kind of uh, interesting experience. There was a Ajahn Sundra, you were going to say something. Well, it's interesting because <coughs> when you were describing, you know, oh, wow, 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 you know, this feeling of inspiration or whatever, and positive. Um, today somebody came to me and said, I have a question for you. I have a question, so we had a chat. And uh, <coughs> he was saying, I don't, I don't want to be a self. So, we, you know, we went on <laughs> this discussion. But what what came to mind is um, how it is easy to have this mind control mechanism regarding impermanence. So um, people feel, oh, I shouldn't be really feeling all this, you know, it's like, I shouldn't be feeling, you know, inspired. That's bad, it's not Buddhist, you know. <laughs> so the thing is, it can be interpreted yeah. in a very uh, treacherous ways by uh, people imagining that you have to control impermanence in a way. Uh, you know, I mean, impermanence controls awareness, you know, mm -hmm. the more aware you are, the more things just dissolve. But uh, how many people have noticed, you know, can imagine that because you're a Buddhist, you should not feel anything? That, that's incredibly common. I mean, it's another one of those things that that uh, I, uh, my, well, my, yeah, my mother died last month, and, you know, I've been really, I've been crying all the time, you know, I, but I, I feel like I'm a really bad Buddhist because yeah, I should have got over it by now. So, and it's, it's amazing. I'm sure it's the same for you, but it's amazing the number of times people assume that uh, I'm supposed to be a Buddhist, therefore I shouldn't be feeling anything. And you know, you have to, well, it's not exactly like that. <laughs> it's not a matter of not feeling or, or making yourself like numb or. Uh, of nullifying your your mind and and having no no opinions or no feelings and no uh, no no personality like we were t talking about the, that yesterday it's it's not about nullifying your emotions and personal characteristics but understanding them and then in it and particularly uh, again with with mindfulness rather than mindfulness meaning like everything is just Turned into a mush of sense data, you know. It's just you know, as if mindfulness is supposed to turn your whole life just into ones and zeros, like mm -hmm. you know, feeling, feeling, thinking, thinking, you know, uh, and it kind of turning yourself into a kind of zombie. It, it's uh, it's a, a, I feel it's a really wrong understanding that people are regularly getting getting fed and and picking up because it's it's not so much a matter of of um, uh, the, the the mindful attention to uh, to things that you, where you just you're neutralizing all experience and turning everything into a, a bland mush, but rather the mindfulness is helping the mind to dis, to discern. Okay, that's wholesome. That's unwholesome. That's get, that's going towards confusion. That's going towards clarity, and that they're, they're, the more mindfulness, the better. But it's not nullifying things, but it's just helping the mind to discern. What's what's wholesome? What's unwholesome? What's what's neutral? And then guiding the choices towards what's going to be beneficial and and wholesome. What's going to be uh, confusing or, or lead towards pain, you know, painfulness and and uh, unwholesomeness. Yeah, there's wholesome and unwholesome, and also to experience anicca, like to see truly when somebody's seeing rather than chopping it with aversion. Right. Yeah. It's it's not about because yeah. I mean. Uh, we, We've all 
heard countless talks of uh, Lumpur Sumedho talking about how letting go uh, gets <laughs> uh, misinterpreted as annihilation, like wiping out your thoughts, wiping out your feelings, and trying to just shut everything down, to just to forget or to not feel. And uh, uh, countless numbers of his Dhamma talks uh, about Vibhava Tanha as a, you know, as a, Obstruction to, to liberation, to enlightenment, because it's it's not about um, uh, wiping out or getting rid of, but rather, yes, you know, just as you said, letting things cease. The wording, I'm, uh, the wording is saying um, that which is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, attained, sought after, and ranged over by the mind is that permanent or impermanent? Mm. So it's, um, and then it goes through that it's all impermanent, and it is what is impermanent, suffering or happiness, suffering or absurd. But without clinging to what is impermanent, suffering and subject to change, could such a view as that arise? Then he says, when because a noble disciple has abandoned perplexity so it's about a, a, abandoning perplexity about uh, those things and uh, is seeing things in terms of the four noble truths so it's not really not thinking or not using the faculty of, of wise consideration it's a it's a abandoning perplexity which means <coughs> i was i would read that as confused thinking or like filling up the gaps with your own beliefs or habits or compulsions. I I don't I wouldn't read it as as discouraging um, understanding. No. <laughs> well, that, to me, what, what that's doing is it's creating a context for skillful um, processing of experience. So, because you also you have like Dhamma Vijaya, the investigation of reality is one of the factors of enlightenment. Yoni So Manasikara is one of the supportive factors for stream entry. So, those are the very uh, qualities that are there, like recognizing patterns, seeing how things are related to each other in the world of things. How one thing conditions another, how things affect each other, how things work together, you know what what causes uh, you know things to to function in the way that they do. So those are are very um, significant qualities. But the the insight into anicca and rec- in a way it's helping to keep that investigative thought and that process of recognizing patterns. It's keeping it in the context of of well these are just these are thoughts, these are ideas, these are insubstantial in themselves and that it's in a sense helping to keep the thinking clear or that kind of investigation so when, when people ask about Yoni Somanasikara, like what is what is reflective thought how is that different from just the chattering mind yeah often what I'll say is well when when it's when it's genuine reflective thought the mind picks up a theme and and uh, and explores it in a deliberate way. Like, okay, well, why is this important? Or what's there to say about the uh, the skillful use of thought? Hmm. So when when the mind is using uh, wise reflection, it thinks in whole sentences, and there's gaps, there's spaces, 
when the mind is just chattering and it's just the, the, the flow of papancha, then it doesn't think in whole sentences or even whole clauses. It's just a, a kind of fragmented stream, like a word cloud. It's kind of bits and pieces of this and that sort of jammed in with each other. One thing leading on to another or, or uh, alluding to another and, and connecting with another. And it's a kind of chaotic and, and can be colorful, but it's not thematic and there's not much space in it. When it's Yoni Somanasikara, there's like the okay, well how does that how does wise thinking take shape? Hmm. Does it depend on conceptual thought only? Or how does mental imagery come into that? How does the, the, the picturing capacity of the mind work together with a verbal thought? Hmm. Never, never asked myself that before. Hmm. And then, so that there's a there's a pause, there's a like a, a listening and attending, as that the the flow of, of thought has its effect. And then, rather than that space being filled up, then <coughs> then uh, it might just because of needing to fill up a gap. <laughs> this is how it works in my mind. Is that there can be a, a pause, like hmm. How does that work? And then suddenly something will pop up and say, well, you could see that the, the image, the mental image arises and then the, <coughs> the words come to, to spell out the, the meaning of that, that particular image or uh, an association that comes from it. Hmm. So what does that say about imagination? You know? And then whatever it might be, you know, just sort of making that up. So that there's a, a, a measured quality, there's an evenness. And if there's a space, like say that something arises, like, well, how can you really best describe vinyana? So when people keep asking, what is vinyana? What's the best way of describing that? The mind goes completely blank. Right, I can't, there's no image that comes to mind that perfectly describes what vinyana is. That's interesting. And, it is, and you can just leave it blank. It's not like the, the, the mind has to sort of jump in and fill that. It's like, hmm, there must be some kind of image that does the job. But at the moment, my mind is not coming out with anything. Ah, interesting. So that it's the, when there's, there's wise reflection, it's, it's content with mystery. It's, it's not threatened by, blank, by absence or mystery. Um, it's a, it's uh, able to not know. So when, um, when Lumpur Sumato was um, many years ago, and he was uh, using the term uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension for, for Sati Sampajanya, he, uh, he said he began to feel really uncomfortable because he says, yeah, when you say clear comprehension, it means like you are understanding everything. But actually you can be mindful of not understanding things. And so he, he, came, he came up with the term intuitive awareness as a translation for Sati Sampajanya because the intuition is, not having, is more representative of, well, you can't always explain everything. You can be mindful of the present and not have a clue what's going on. So, hmm, this is a question. Mm. <laughs> and, the, and so he, rather than using clear comprehension, because that implies a, a, a sort of a, a conceptual understanding, he thought, no, a lot of the time you can be mindful of, of not being clear about what's going on or what's the, the best way forward or not understanding what's happening. And, though, and so that, that quality of of wise reflection, I feel it needs to have that element of mystery or, or, or spaciousness in there, that it's not, it's not always just filling up the, the gaps. Whereas when the mind is chattering, or just, it's just like a, a verbal, um, the mind is caught into a verbal thought stream, there's no space there and it just, it, it doesn't really pause, it just sort of jumps from one thing to another to another, like a, the Buddha said, like a monkey jumping through the, the branches of a tree. 
Giving the monkey a writing machine. Yeah. Well, at least <laughs> helping the, the, the monkey to be more composed. So, uh, well, that, maybe that's a good place to to pause since it's seven o'clock. Um, yeah, that uh, that's the um, first two of the fetters, and we goes on to Silapata Paramasa after that. So, let's just. Uh, Call a finish there with the monkey and the typewriter. Um.